9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City uh, on this, the week uh, before Christmas, and we're getting close to the end of this year that all of us want to be done with, I think, rather quickly. Uh, We've got an interesting discussion in store today. We're joined uh, by special guest uh, Ruth Ben-Ghiat, who is the author of Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present. She's also a professor of uh, history and of Italian at NYU. Hi, Ruth. Hi. Thanks for joining us. Um, And uh, of course, in Washington, D.C., we have Rosa Brooks. Well, in Alexandria, Virginia, we have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center. Hi, Rosa. Hi, David. And who knows, at some point or another, we may have Corey Shockey uh, joining us. People's schedules are a bit in flux, what with the holiday and so forth. Uh, let me start out uh, by uh, asking Ruth a, a, a bit about your, your, your book. Uh, it's one of these exquisitely well-timed things. Um, uh, and... Uh, you know, for those of us who write books periodically, you know, we, we can be frustrated with the promotional efforts of our publishers, but you seem to have Donald Trump doing all the heavy lifting in terms of promoting your book and its thesis. Every, every day now, he seems to be making people say, I need to read about strongmen. I need to understand this better. How did you arrange to have him do that for you? <laughs> it wasn't hard given his personality and his notion of uh, governance, which is of course uh, all about self-enrichment and uh, being adulated. So his character is the same as he's always had. And it's a lesson in uh, when these people get into power, they, uh, they don't wanna leave. So that, that wasn't, I had to turn in the book before the um, election, but my last words about him was that he wasn't going to be leaving quietly if he was like everybody else I'd written about. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, people who knew him <laughs> predicted that. So did Rosa Brooks, by the way. I mean, <laughs> I, I do, I would I'd take a moment here, you know, Rosa, you guys got a lot of heat for saying, well, you know, we need to explore the scenarios if he doesn't go quietly. Has anybody called you to apologize recently? <laughs> Nobody has called me to apologize, David. Um, but I do, you know, it's it's interesting. And and I, Ruth, I would be curious to know your thoughts about this. I, I think there has been sort of two equal and somewhat contradictory responses to what Trump has, Trump has been doing in the last uh, six weeks, you know, since the election. One is to go, oh, all you people who were warning that he would, you know, attempt to stay in office and subvert democracy and the sky would fall and our democracy would be in crisis. Look how wrong you were. Um, Everything is fine. Biden won. Nobody's paying any any attention to Trump. You know, all that sky is falling stuff was silly um, versus another group of people were saying, look, he's doing exactly all the sky is falling stuff. It's just that it's not working because people were, 
you know, A, forewarned and B, um, Biden's victory was actually pretty big. Um, but I think, I think that that, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that debate will probably continue um, long past Trump, but uh, I'm, I'm curious to whether your perspective is, is we should still be scared or an alarm versus we can all calm down now and, and we didn't need to be as worried as we were. No, I, I think we can't calm down. Um, that would be a disservice to our democracy to calm down because uh, he is still there until you know January 20th. And uh, like other uh, leaders of his temperament, he's trying to drag down and make as difficult as possible uh, America, you know, his governance in the future, trying to, he's still, I mean, proposing military coups. And just because he's not going to get away with it doesn't mean we shouldn't be extremely alarmed at his tendencies. And I also think that we haven't even begun to digest the damage that he's done uh, and uh, to institutions, to uh, the civil service, to all of these realms in which he's really worked very hard to uh, have loyalty quotients and shift the political culture. First of all, I'd like to take a moment here and welcome uh, on board uh, our friend Corey Shockey. Hi, Corey, how are you? Hello, I'm so sorry to be late joining in, but I'm super happy to be part of this important conversation on Ruth's work. Um, well, we're happy to have you here. Of course, Corey is at the American Enterprise Institute where she runs foreign policy and national security programs. Uh, Corey, let me ask you a question and you may or may not want to turn the question into a, a comment on Ruth's thesis or a question for Ruth, but um, uh, you're of course, very youthful, but I am old enough to remember uh, when not that many years ago, we were going through a lot of people writing about everything. We were living in a golden age of democracy and uh, democracy was winning and uh, authoritarianism and autocrats were losing everywhere we looked. You think that's still the case around the world? How, you know, how relevant do you think this kind of a, a study that Ruth has done is for the future beyond any implications simply about Trump? So I do think authoritarians continue to pick up ground. Uh, and that is partly because as this year in American politics has shown, democracy is exhausting, <laughs> right? Like it's much easier not to have to know or care, not to pay attention, not to educate fellow citizens or allow ourselves to be persuaded of views we find uncomfortable, uh, but that are important for the body politic. So I think partly um, democracy is hard work and it's hard work for all of us all of the time. So backsliding is a perennial challenge in free societies, but I also, also think both the Iraq war in 2003 and the financial crisis in 2008 and the performance of the United States during the COVID pandemic um, give credence to the claims of our authoritarian adversaries that uh, there are better ways than the noisy uh, disputatiousness of American society for solving societal problems. So one thing that, that makes me hopeful that we can turn the tide on the international challenge 
is that we in the United States are setting a better example, right? Like Americans did really good work this year. And as Yasha Monk has pointed out, it's actually quite a rarity to be able to stem the progress towards authoritarianism, even in a country in which freedom is as rambunctious as in the United States. So I think it's hugely important. Um, the United States is safest in a world of other democracies. And the, the ingenuity and prosperity and security that freedom provides really matters to the United States, both at home and abroad. So, so yes, I think it's hugely consequential. My question for Ruth, if I may, David, is to ask, what do you think beyond the election, the most important priorities should be for continuing to restore the vibrancy of democracy in America? I think uh, it's a great question and I agree with your points that you said about, uh, in fact, I conclude on similar lines in the book that democracy is hard work and we've been taking it for granted. So these, these years uh, of Trump's executive overreach, et cetera, are a real wake up call. I think uh, one of the biggest priorities is uh, repairing foreign relations with democratic allies and reassuring uh, them of uh, that the kind of foreign policy partly for sale that Trump was pursuing will not be continued. Now this opens up a larger discussion of what do we do about the State Department, which was uh, quite damaged by personnel you know, changes and loyalty quotients and Pompeo's leadership. Um, so that's, that's one thing. I think another is, um, to really vigorously um, address the shifts in uh, domestic political culture that uh, and the rising corruption that Trump fostered, and I have a, I added a chapter on corruption to the book because it's so important, and it's not just financial corruption, but uh, really moral corruption in a sense of corruption of ethics and governance. So I'm really worried about all the changes that have gone on in uh, various federal agencies. And so that's going to need to be addressed, a culture shift back to the values of accountability and transparency. So really what you're saying is that strong men are the ugly fat of the body politic. And if people get lazy, um, that's the sign of the, their, their, their laziness. And of course you get enough of that and, and it's, it's threatening to the life of the body politic. Rosa, what what do you think? I mean, what did you think that that the U.S. is just going to bounce back? Um, that you know we dodged a bullet, or do you think that there's some underlying factors that that make sort of recidivism towards this uh, Trumpian kind of leadership possible? It's a great question. And we've, we've talked about this a bit on this podcast before, you know, wondering about how deep the political divisions truly are. Are they more superficial? Are they really different and more severe than in the past or not? And I, and, and Ruth, I'm sure you're much more familiar with this research than I am, but I, I know that there has been some work done on sort of authoritarian personalities and uh, political political ideology of people with more authoritarian personality structures. 
So, you know, one, I know that sort of one theory holds essentially that we've got 30 or so percent of Americans who are basically predisposed towards authoritarianism. And that's probably been pretty constant for uh, a pretty long time and is not actually a new Trump related phenomenon or a phenomenon of the last 15 or 20 years, even that, that that's probably, you know, you could go to 1950 or 1920 or 1890. And if you were able to go back in time and do those same kinds of personality tests, you'd find the same thing. And so if that's the case, then, then nothing fundamental has changed about American predispositions. It is more perhaps an issue of elite bargains and leadership, uh, you know, that, that Americans, most Americans will respond positively to positive forms of leadership. 30% will always be authoritarian no matter what you do. And it's a question of how do we, how do we motivate the the 70% or whatever it may be who aren't authoritarian who aren't authoritarian instinctively and how do we cultivate good leadership and what does that actually mean in terms of concrete um, in terms of concrete policy arrangements um, um, you know the other theory is that no we really are there's something kind of qualitatively different about American culture now that is not just a matter of, you know, you stick Joe Biden in the White House and over time things change. And, and I, I guess I'm sort of, I don't know, maybe maybe my instinct is always to sort of straddle the differences. I'm inclined to think it's probably a little bit of both, you know, that, that the sort of fundamental structure of the human personality probably doesn't change all that much from year to year or decade to decade for that matter. Um, but that the sort of fundamental political structures do change and that things like what gets funded and, um, you know, geographic distribution affecting uh, Senate votes and electoral college impact and so on, that those structural things obviously do get kind of more and more locked into place in various ways. And it's the interplay between the probably not, not terribly dynamic personality structures versus the sort of changing political arrangements and concentrations of money and power and so forth. Um, that we have to focus on that. That was a very abstract answer to to your pretty concrete question, uh, for which I apologize. <laughs> but but I I think I think what that says to me is that um, on the one hand, no, we're absolutely not. We don't get to say on January twentieth at twelve oh one p.m. or whatever time Biden finishes getting sworn in, hooray, that's over, um, back to normal now. Um, but that on the other hand, we probably shouldn't. We probably shouldn't have too much of a Jeremiah about things have never been this horrible. You know, we can never change this again because the the changes may not be quite as deep as we think they are, and there may be more possibility to turn things around. Uh, that has to do less with idi and and that turning things around may have to do less with ideology. Um, and more with really boring, nitty gritty changes to political arrangements, which we may or may not have the leadership and the political capital to make. Mm -hmm. um, do what you want to respond to that, Ruth, and then I'll go to Corey. Yeah, one of the things, so the book is an exercise in looking back over a hundred years at um, not only the tools of rule that these leaders have uh, always used, um, propaganda, corruption, violence, inc incitements to national greatness, et cetera. But it's, it's designed to show patterns. And one of the patterns is that it, over and over of a hundred years, it's happened that, that these individuals come on the scene 
um, and they kind of weaponize and energize existing extremist, authoritarian, anti-democratic tendencies in, their, in that time and place. And so once those get, you know, kind of uh, brought into the mainstream and legitimized, it's kind of hard to get rid of them. Um, and the other thing that recurs is the authoritarian bargains. And there's a lot of good um, political science uh, li literature on these authoritarian bargains, but they go with this because over and over these, you know, conservative elites have invited these kind of Sometimes they come from outside the political system into the, they've invited them in the system. They've mainstreamed them. Uh, they think that they can calm them down. This was in our case, the pivot delusion that Trump would become presidential. And, you know, it's a bargain. So both sides benefit and that's why the partnerships endure no matter what the person does or says, no matter the destruction that he causes. And the GOP has stuck to this model, you know, very few have defected. I've been waiting for the elite defections at the end of, a, <clears throat> of an authoritarian's time and very few have happened. But so yeah. the things that Rose was saying, these structural things, it was fascinating to me um, that they, how often they've recurred in history. Uh, yeah, no, there are echoes throughout the, the book uh, from different moments that, that echo with now. Um, yeah. and there are some, you know, I mean, today, you know, Bill Barr said, uh, well, no, uh, there's no reason for special counsel to look into election fraud. And, you know, there was no fiddling with the election. And so, and so he's trying, I think at the last minute here to break from, from Trump. And while that's not exactly the same as, you know, Goering saying I was a peacemaker at Nuremberg. They're, they're, you know, these things happen after the fact. Um, Corey, I'm interested in your reaction to the same question that, that Rosa responded to, which is what do, what do we need to do now to avoid coming this close to this problem again? I do think there are lots of things normative in American politics or that are exist in legislation but have not been actualized, right? Why isn't the Hatch Act, which mm -hmm. prohibits political appointees in the federal government from actively campaigning? Um, you know, uh, Kellyanne Conway's in violation of the Hatch Act. Practic uh, Mike Pompeo's in violation of the Hatch Act. Rob O'Brien's in violation of the Hatch Act. I think bringing uh, the lawsuits that turn them from a norm into uh, having a legislative and judicial record that will intimidate future. Mm -hmm. uh, the emoluments clause, like why are Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump permitted to be earning money from new business operations while they are in the White House. We need, to, we need to shift from a belief that normative enforcements are sufficient to the task to establishing the legal record that will prevent people from be, breaching the norms in the way that so many people in the Trump administration have. May I ask a question of Ruth, David, when, of before we're done? You can ask one right now. 
Great, thanks. So Ruth, you emphasize so much the uh, conservatives assisting authoritarians to power. And I'd love to see what it looks like from the other side of the political spectrum. So pick a case where um, people of the left facilitated a, an authoritarian rise. And I'd love to see where the commonalities, irrespective of the direction of corruption of, of free societies are for you. Yeah, so um, I, being a historian of fascism, I um, decided to uh, limit my case studies to mostly right-wing authoritarians. And I wanted to show the through lines that, you know, when fascism flames out in the war, what happens to these things? So you have, you know, they go to Franco, Spain, then they go to Pinochet, and uh, then Berlusconi normalizes the right after the Cold War ends and, and this kind of, you know, continuity of things. Um, I definitely, many of these same processes work from the left. And so there's absolutely no, there's no idea that these things only happen on uh, the right and not on the left, that would be silly. So um, I just wanted to delineate uh, a certain um, kind of through line of things because uh, it also connects to Trump. And I wanted to show these rhetorical and other similarities when, you know, he's talking about the left being a radical mob, agitators, writers, this is very, very similar language that goes back to Mussolini. And I wanted to uh, have that historical context be clear, but it's clearly, there are many similar, I mean, a lot of the template of authoritarianism was obviously came out of early communism from personality cults to, to you know, mass uh, social and youth organizations. It's a, it's a common uh, template and then it goes, you know, different ways. Rosa, I'd, I'd like to pry a little bit into how your weekend went. So at one point in my weekend, I was like following, <laughs> following Twitter and um, I noticed that a story came up and it said something like, Trump met at the White House last night with... Um, uh, Sidney Powell and and Rudy Giuliani by phone and Michael Flynn, and they discussed whether to make Sidney Powell into a special prosecutor to look into election fraud. Um, and then, you know, you read the story and down like eight paragraphs in the story, it said uh, they also discussed Michael Flynn's idea of declaring martial law. <laughs> and I was like, what the fuck? This is eight paragraphs down in this story. You know, and, and is some of the problem that we're just so inured to all this stuff or am I just overreacting? Maybe maybe it's no big deal that, you know, former national security advisor general is sitting there saying, let's declare martial law and the president's like, what well, can we do that? I mean, what was your reaction or don't you think of these things on the weekend? I wasn't thinking about these things this weekend, David. Thanks for wrecking my Monday. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, I, I, did, I saw a little of this on just on the CNN scrawl, crawl, yeah. whatever you call that, crawl, scrawl. Um, the scrolling crawl. Should be called the scrawl. Yes, it should. Um, um, you know, I simultaneously had the, my God, Flynn has just completely lost it. Um, reaction. Um, I had a brief discussion with my husband about whether the pardon 
the presidential pardon of Flynn would preclude the army after Biden is sworn in from taking administrative disciplinary measures against Flynn to take away his pension, et cetera, to which neither of us, it turned out, knew the answer. But we had a, we had a long, pleasant discussion in which, we, in which we agreed that they really ought to if they could, um, <laughs> without clarity on whether they could. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, I think this goes back to our, our, our initial discussion about are we out of the woods? Um, and, you know, we're, we're, in a, we're in a world where the guy who is still our president uh, for another month, basically, um, thinks this is plausible. His former national security advisor thinks this is plausible. Um, luckily for us, I think the size of Biden's victory was such that he would get, you know, what, what restrains, what, I mean, and again, I'll defer to Ruth on this because you have had the great joy of spending far more time immersed <laughs> in, in the, in the their heads. Of strongmen. But, but, you know, I, so when you think, well, what keeps a strongman from doing something particularly outrageous? Well, even strongmen cannot function unless they have willing henchmen. And what we have seen with Trump finally, although still not as much as you might think we should have seen, is, is his willing henchmen beginning to edge away from him. Um, you know, yeah. even the Bill Barr is beginning to edge away from him and the Mitch McConnell sort of saying, okay, president-elect Biden is really the president-elect, no kidding. And we've clearly seen the military being really clear, no, no, we don't get involved in this. So at this point, I think it's, you know, it's just empty, empty rhetoric and empty threats that Trump could at this point say, I hereby invoke the Insurrection Act and, and I want the, you know, there has been an effort to overthrow the US government and I want a do over and I'm gonna order the military to conduct a new election because there was so much fraud. At this point, I think the answer he would get from Mitch McConnell, from Bill Barr and from uh, uh, the US military would be no. Uh -uh. Um, and I hope he won't even try it. I hope he's getting clear enough internal signals that the answer would be no, that he won't even try it. But, but it's, still, it's still shocking that this is even a conversation topic because what it, you know, and this is obviously the debate people have had throughout the Trump years is how do you not normalize this? And I, I actually think that it's not that we have normalized Trump, it's that Trump, Trump has normalized you know, the, the nature of the presidency, you have such a bully pulpit that the, the notion that the US news media could just like not cover it or something was always a little delusional. Um, and, you know, Trump himself has normalized these, these notions that would have been considered anathema uh, just four or five years ago. Yeah, if I can say what's so interesting about these years in a horrifying way is <laughs> We have been exposed um, because we still have a free press and he didn't succeed. He wasn't there long enough because all these people started somewhere. So sometimes there's the argument, people say, oh, you're alarmist, you're hysterical. He, of course, he's not like Putin. It's like, well, Putin's been there for 20 years. But because he wasn't there very long and he didn't, you know, he wasn't able to destroy the free press, et cetera. We've been able to see the inner workings. Uh, we've had like a compressed, um, experience uh, of many of the dynamics and aspirations that happen under authoritarianism. They didn't work, right? But he wanted uh, them to work. So even the pardons, mm -hmm. uh, I have a paragraph about pardons in the book where pardons come at a strategic moment when 
um, often when an authoritarian is getting ready to do some kind of state of siege. So, so it was very interesting that he starts pardoning people and the purpose of the pardon is always to render criminals available for further, you know, set for further and more extreme things. So Mussolini, when he uh, gets, he declares dictatorship in 1925, he pardons all political criminals, meaning all the thugs who got him to power so they can serve in his secret police and you know, go ahead and, and kind of enforce his new dictatorship. So, you know, Flynn is doing his, he was doing his job. He was pardoned so that he could be the voice of extremism, you know, with the martial law and coups and all of this. So I found that really interesting. And a lot of the dynamics that have been on in the newspaper and on our news sites are actually, you usually only hear about them if people go into exile, like in a classic dictatorship or, or repressive society. Mm-hmm. You only hear about them after the person's gone or you know, if people do tell-offs after they've left the country. And so we've really had a whole civic education, not only we've had a lessons in, in democracy as, as uh, Corey was saying at the beginning, but we've had lessons in how these impulses uh, influence governance uh, toward uh, illiberal rule. It's been really, really interesting. So I've got one last question, which I'd like to ask all three of you, and I'll ask it to Corey, then to, to to, to Rosa and, and then Ruth. And it's this, if you were sitting with P- President Biden in, in, a, in a month, just over a month, or, or you had the ears of the leadership in the Congress, um, and you were tasked with saying, answering the question, what guardrails do we need that we don't have? What, what guard, you know, what guardrails, now you, you might answer the question, enforce the law, which was kind of a implication of what earlier point of Corey's. Uh, or you might say there's educational goals or the media needs to do something better. But if you were at, you know, saying, look, we came close here, you know, we just nearly had a heart attack or we had a heart attack, but we didn't die from it. Um, what, what regime do we have to put into place to ensure we don't have it again? Um, what would you advise them, Corey, then Rosa, then Ruth? Oh, that's a great question, David. Uh, when I see, so as you were saying, what should the media do differently? I despaired because, because uh, you know, the media does what the media does and none of us have the ability to affect it. Um, so, so I'm hesitant on that count and yet I'm going to dive right into it, which is to... <laughs> say that I think the national media has not taken enough responsibility for their contributions to the rise of Donald Trump. And one in particular that I would love to see become the norm in an age of of where cyber hackery affects all of our lives, which is uh, just as many media outlets uh, in order not to reward serial killers won't publish the names of serial killers in the newspaper. I think I would love to see the development of a norm by the American media not to publish hacked emails because the amount of time that the media spent uh, deliciously 
involved in the hacking of uh, Clinton campaign emails had so much to do with Donald Trump's rise. A second thing I think we could do is I think the mistakes that uh, the FBI director, Jim Comey, made during the 2016 election actually had enormous political consequences. And so having congressional oversight on a bipartisan basis to develop what are the appropriate um, public information if somebody running for a national office is under investigation. We actually need to develop clear rules of the road on that because I think Jim Comey was trying hard to play it straight and uh, the attorney general having um, recused herself on those issues made it Scylla and Charybdis. But I, I still think that's an area where greater clarification would be helpful. Um, uh, much as I hate to uh, disappoint the supporters of General Austin, retired General Austin, I do think restoring the norms across the government, including the norm that recently retired military officers shouldn't be appointed to be the Secretary of Defense. I think reverting to the norms, as, as unhappy as that is in this particular instance, are really important. Uh, and then just to reiterate the point that both you and I made, David, that I think prosecuting people for sedition. Um, Mike, Mike Flynn is encouraging uh, a military insurrection in this country. And I don't think it's good enough to leave it to the chief of staff of the army and the secretary of the army to say, no, we're not doing that. Um, you know, the secretary, the acting secretary of defense should be fired for not uh, upholding civilian control of the military. And, uh, and people should be prosecuted for it. No question about it. Rosa? Yeah, um, so I'm in complete agreement with everything Corey said. Um, the additional thing I would add is I, is I do think we need to tighten up some of the laws. Um, well, a couple of additional points. One is we do think to tighten up some of the laws. I mean, for instance, um, the prohibition on having uh, people recently out of uniform serve as Secretary of Defense, um, as, as our friend Jim Golby keeps reminding us and others, it doesn't have a waiver provision. When Mattis and in before him, uh, 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 George C. Marshall um, became secretaries of defense with less than the statutorily required period out of uniform. In both cases, Congress had to pass legislation uh, saying we will not require them to do this thing that the law otherwise requires. So it's not as though there's a law with a waiver provision that Congress has, has simply overridden one law temporarily for one person with a new law. And what we could do if we don't want that to happen, for instance, and I'm just using this as an example, is Congress could pass legislation saying it takes a supermajority um, to override that statutory prohibition. You know, similarly, you can you can try to protect the independence of Justice Department officials by creating you know, bipartisan oversight commissions which have an even number from each party and that require consensus 
to proceed or to make decisions about whether to go forward or not with, with investigations or, you know, I mean, you have to structure them carefully, but I think it can be done. And I think, I think we do have a lot of legislation that has enough uh, ambiguities, gaps and uncertainties that we have filled those in with normative consensus. And what we have seen is that when the normative consensus fractures, um, the law in itself is not sufficient. You can't, you can't, as I've said, you know, many times, um, law is not separate from politics and culture. Law, law is part of politics and culture. And no matter what you put in the law, it will be ineffective if the sort of normative underpinnings entirely break down. But that being said, you know, you can make it a little harder to get around the, the law by specifying in very precise ways and making more automatic hey, here is what happened, you know, if X, then Y, unless you have a supermajority to override, um, you don't have to leave quite as much to chance as we currently leave to chance and to the goodwill of elected officials. So I, so I do think that there are a lot of areas where one of the morals of the Trump story is that we need to be a whole lot more explicit and a whole lot more careful to spell out exactly what can and cannot happen and what, what must and must not happen. But the other area is is much broader. I mean, I do and, and much longer term, and and that does go to the kind of cultural and political work of of shoring up those norms and getting pre commitments of various sorts and voter education, and everything else, and all of that is boring and unglamorous, and it takes forever, and it's not guaranteed to succeed. But I do think that if we're not willing to at least try all of that, um, you know. We, we end up going back to no matter what you end up putting in the law, it's only going to work if people are willing to take it seriously. And what we saw under Trump was an awful lot of people were not willing to take the law seriously. Ruth. I think I agree with everything that's been said. I think that uh, Trump has left us with a map of the weaknesses of our institutions and the loopholes and the laws, because this was somebody who lived his entire existence uh, in that gray zone of le illegality and legality. That's how he ran his business. And he just imported that model into governance with disastrous effects. So I, I agree that striking back against uh, corruption and, and um, you know, making sure there are consequences paid for violating the Hatch Act, for example, and, and other things. Because, and here, uh, other experiences are important in, in Berlusconi's Italy, and this was somebody who, who like Trump, had thousands of, uh, you know, lawsuits uh, under his belt when he came into power. He was highly corrupt. And when he was voted out in 2006, the center left did not make anti-corruption legislation a priority. And they wanted to turn the page. They didn't want to encourage Berlusconi's victim cult. It was the same, it was a very similar situation except Berlusconi owned TV networks. So he had more, uh, even more media clout and public opinion shaping clout. But so they didn't really do much. And from this was born the far right populist anger of Beppe Grillo and the Five Star Movement and Berlusconi was voted back in less than two years later. <laughs> and he was more corrupt than ever. And, and studies showed that uh, Italians' attitudes toward corruption, they, they, had ac they accepted corruption more at the end of Berlusconi's uh, decade in and out of office. So this is very serious. The other point would be the media, which uh, as well as not falling for the both sides things, they fell completely for 
uh, this kind of personalization of politics that strongmen know so well how to do, where Trump was able to lead everybody around through scandal, through outrage. And so we have to have a much more judicious model of coverage of politicians. And I think, again, when men like Trump come on the scene, they are like an earthquake and they show us where the fissures were and what to shore up. And we need to do this in many areas uh, in the next years to avoid Trump's of the future. Great, great points from all three of you. I think, uh, Ruth, congratulations on the book because having the historical context is extremely important. The the, the Mussolini analogies or the Berlusconi analogies um, uh, are, are, are trenchant in, in the context of, of what we're, we're going through. I was reading a completely different thing today and I, I, I hesitate to say this because making this analogy is always sort of the third rail, but I was reading a little bit about Hitler's last few weeks in the bunker and mm-hmm. quite apart from who Hitler was and what he did and not intending to make the direct comparison between Trump and Hitler, the paranoia of the strong man whose world is collapsing around him um, produced very, very similar psychological reactions. Um, when you read it, you can't help but, you know, as he lashes out as his inner circle or he seeks retribution in certain ways or his irrationality. And so all of these historical lessons are important to, to know. I think that, that one that you just mentioned about how the Italian center left responded post Berlusconi is one that we really need to take to heart. And I think Joe Biden is going to find himself in that position that that presidents sometimes do, um, as happened in the wake of Richard Nixon, where the leaderly thing for him to do will be to help make his office um, uh, less powerful, to help create new constraints for his office, to ensure that abuses can't take place again. And, you know, it's hard to imagine presidents saying, you know, we will give up this power, or I will give more oversight to the Congress, or let's have this law that makes it impossible for me to sidestep the Congress. But that's exactly what we need right now, just as we need the, the, the prosecution, the accountability that Corey was referring to earlier. Uh, and that's going to be one of the big challenges for the Biden administration, where we, were, we will find ourselves back in this condition again. Um, uh, so, you know, it's a holiday week, but we have a lot coming up tomorrow. We've got a podcast with uh, our friend David Sanger and um, a fellow named Dmitry Alperovich of, of CrowdStrike um, about this giant cyber hack that took place um, and looking into uh, its origins and its consequences and the, the somewhat striking difference of opinion about it between everybody and Donald Trump. Uh, and then on, on Wednesday, we're going to do one of those kind of look back at 2020 conversations um, with our usual Thursday crowd of, of, of Ryan Goodman and Kavita Patel. But we will be joined um, by uh, uh, Kurt Anderson, who's a very uh, smart observer uh, who wrote the book Evil Geniuses this year. Um, uh, Lori Garrett, who has been our observer of all things uh, COVID and Juliet Kayyem. So that's going to be terrific. And we have one more podcast. So watch your feed. 
which will be completely unlike anything else we've done, but a bit of a treat um, and something to make you smile over the holidays. So keep an eye out for all of that. Enjoy the holidays. Stay safe. Uh, and thank you again, Ruth and Rosa and Corey. Bye-bye.